Good morning, family. It's good to be with you this morning. Always good to be together in the Lord's house. What a blessing it is that we often take for granted that we can gather together in freedom, in security, and comfort. Many, perhaps most of our brothers and sisters around the world don't have that blessing, and yet it's something we take for granted. Before we dig into the Word this morning, let's take a moment and let's go to prayer. Father God, we are grateful for this opportunity. Time to get away from the normal routine of things. Time to gather with our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Time to gather together to worship you. Time to gather around your word, your inspired, infallible word that you have given to us. Time to hear from you as you speak through your word. So I ask that this morning you would do that, that your spirit would use your word to dig deep into our hearts and to minister to us, to grow us to be more like you and to draw us closer to you. Father, this morning our hearts are heavy in the unexpected loss of our brother Jim Ingram. At the same time, we are full of rejoicing because he is with you. But Father, we ask your grace, especially upon uh, Geralee and the family, uh, that you would give them comfort and peace. We ask, Father, that through all of these things that you would do even as you've promised and work good and that you will bring glory to yourself through the life and the testimony of our dear brother. Now again, Father, as we open your word, may you speak. And may our ears be attentive, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Fall is coming upon us. Last week, Labor Day, the end of summer. And uh, I don't know if it's happening at your house, but around my house, as the summer has dwindled away and the fall is starting, we're walking around the house and taking note of all the things that need to be fixed. All the things that need to be trimmed back and the things that need to be planted and the things that need to be scraped and painted and the things that need to be repaired and the things inside, the things outside, the things that need to be remodeled, the things that need to be replaced. And any of you guys got lists going on like that? Yeah. Okay, it's not just me. I don't know about your list, but our list is lengthy. There's a lot of stuff there, and quite frankly, it's overwhelming. Matter of fact, looking at the list, I'm tempted to just throw up my hands and go take a nap. Or go play. That's even better, because I'm just i a big kid. I like to go play. And just hope that, you know, eventually the jobs will disappear. And that strategy doesn't work very well. Because most of us know the jobs just get bigger and the list gets longer. In recent weeks, we've been studying in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. And here the scripture gets very specific and very practical about how our being Jesus followers 
should dramatically affect our relationships. It should be changing our attitudes, changing our actions towards others. We've learned God's design for relationships in general and then moved on to specific instructions that are here for wives and for husbands and last week for children and today we come to parents. I've heard from a number of you over the last number of weeks who have said that the scriptures here have been incredibly convicting The renovations and changes that are needed in our relationships are rather overwhelming. And some of you have said to me that you feel like throwing up your hands and throwing in the towel and saying, I give up. It's it's too much. It's too hard. But may I say we must not yield to that. We must not allow ourselves to simply dismiss what God's Word has exposed by saying it's too difficult, or that's just the way I am. (laughs) If it's exposing what is wrong, what is sin in us, if it's exposing what is lacking in us, we need to take note. We can't shrug it off as unimportant. Rather, we need to keep pressing on, saying, okay, Lord, use Your Word and work through Your Spirit And change this broken, fallible man into what I am supposed to be. Because our relationships matter. They matter to God and they matter to us. So today as we finish this series of study... We come to Ephesians chapter 6. I hope you have a Bible and hope you you have it open to Ephesians 6 to have the the Word in front of you so you can see with your own eyes this is what God says. We're in Ephesians chapter 6 and our text today is short. Just one little verse. As I said, it is addressing parents. And raising children is perhaps the most challenging, the most daunting, the most difficult task that most of us will face. If you have had children or currently have children, you know I'm not lying. Back in the 1600s, John Wilbert, a writer and poet, he wrote, Before I was married... I had three theories about raising children. Now I have three children and no theories. (laughs) I understand. I was a youth pastor for over 20 years. And uh, the last time I gave a seminar on raising teenagers was the year before my daughter became one. Not because she was bad but I recognize my inadequacies. Parenting is difficult, and it is fraught with danger of many sorts, and it is fraught with heartbreaks. But it is also perhaps the most important and the most significant 
and the most potentially rewarding task you will ever attempt. So here we come to the instructions in the Word of God for parents. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And such ends the instructions to parents. One verse. Twenty words. That's it. Those of you who are parents are going, where's the book? I need a book with lots of chapters because I have kids with lots of issues. <laughs> I remember when we first got the word that uh, we were going to be parents. And I remember just being frightened to death. I read every book I could find. And then when my daughter arrived, I threw the books away because I realized I was so inadequate, so unprepared. And you're just, what I discovered is for the next 20, however many years it was before kids were all out of the house, I realized we were winging it. It's kind of like, you know, what's next? I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't like this one with the, this with the other one. It's all changing. So in, here in the Word of God, 20 words, one verse, simple. Of course, we can make anything sound simple. How do you get a man on the moon? Simple. Build a rocket. Put a man in it. Launch. Land on the moon. Bring it back. Simple. Well, of course, not so much. <laughs> But we can make it simpler if we don't care about getting the man back. Maybe load your rebellious teenager on board. <laughs> yeah. Launch, a moon launch is enormously complex. A witness standing right now down at Cape Canaveral, Artemis 1, the latest generation to try to go back to the moon. After 10 years and billions of dollars, we've had nothing yet but some scrubbed launch attempts, waiting hopefully now in a few weeks or a month for another attempt at a launch. See, sending someone to the moon is incredibly complex. That's what makes it all the more astounding when most of us look back and remember that they've put people on the moon using slide rules because computers hadn't been invented yet to do all the kind of calculations that needed to be done. They were doing calculations on blackboards, chalkboards, and paper. And... But it's complex. But may I say, putting someone on the moon is not nearly as difficult and challenging as raising a child. At least for some of us, it was a challenge. Again, not my daughter's fault. <laughs> Let's look at the text. Let's download these 20 little words and see if we can gain some insight to help those of us who are parents. Those of us maybe even as kids can learn a few things and the rest of us, I think we can 
learn to have a little more empathy and desire to pray a little harder for parents and come alongside and help all the more. It begins, again, verse 4, the first word in the verse, fathers. Fathers. The Greek word that's here is used, that's used for fathers is, like in English, the word father. It refers to dad specifically. However, the word can also be used to refer generally to both mothers and fathers, even as the word can be used in English. In English, we often take a masculine word in the plural form to, and we use it to refer to both men and women in in a plural form. Of course, they're trying to change that in modern English, but the reality is that's how it is. And so we can speak of fathers referring to the men, the fathers, or we can use it to speak of parents. And that is a legitimate use in English, and it's a legitimate use here in Greek as well. And so these instructions do have application to both mothers and fathers, which is why we're calling this this message that it's referring to establishing a legacy and referring to both mothers and fathers. But it's significant to note when we go back to the verses we were at last week, chapter 6, verse 1, the verses about children, what it says is children obey your parents. There it uses a different Greek word. And just like parents in English, which, which, which refers to both mothers and fathers, that word parents refers to both mothers and fathers always. So when he comes here to verse 4 and changes from the word parents and he uses the word fathers, we have to think there's a reason for that. Why does he change to the dads? Two reasons, I think, from the text. The first is that father is a high calling. Back in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, For this reason I, the Apostle Paul is writing, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, God the Father in heaven, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The reason I call our attention to this is because that word family is an interesting word and it can be translated. And you'll note, by the way, in most of your Bibles, it'll have in the footnote in the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard. They will all have there that that word can also be translated as father or fatherhood. And so the verse can read very much like this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom All fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. And I think the real sense of this verse is this. That God is the supreme father as the creator of all, as the one who is in charge. He is the supreme father. And every other form of fatherhood that we speak of, that we can find, is in some way a copy or a reflection of the fact that God is the ultimate one who is originator and in charge. And in that very sense, what we're saying is then that that human fathers are a picture and a copy of God, our heavenly father. And so it is a high calling that that the that God has chosen to call us earthly dads 
fathers because we are borrowing the name of the ultimate father. And it is a high calling. And the fact is that a great theme of this whole book of Ephesians is for all of us to live up to the calling that we have received. We find it several places in the book, but it's most specifically and clearly stated, chapter 4, verse 1, where he says there, he says, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. We have been called as children of God. We have been brought into His family. We have been given a position and inheritance in Christ. We have an eternal destiny and we can go on and on with the calling that we have received and we are to live up to that. And gentlemen... Fathers, we are to live up to the calling that we have as those who are to stand, as it were, in God's place as the leader of our family, the leader in our home, and we are to live up to that. It is a high calling. It is a sobering reality. Because I think this is also to remind us that as such, fathers are accountable. This command here is given to fathers, not to mothers, not to grandparents, not to the church, not to the youth pastor, not to the nanny. It's given to us as fathers. We saw a few weeks ago in chapter 5, verse 23, that it says there to the husband, that the husband is the head. He is the head of the home. But sadly, there are very, very many fathers, including some who name the name of Jesus Christ, who are inclined to be passive in the role of father and relegate that to that's the job of the woman, that's the job of the wife. But as the head of the home, fathers have the primary responsibility before God for their children's upbringing And they will be held accountable to God for what occurs or what does not occur in their homes in raising their children. Our wives, as most of us know as men, our wives very often have greater knowledge and greater skills and greater insight and greater understanding and greater instinct than we do about many things, and perhaps especially in this arena of raising children. And so a wise father may certainly delegate or defer some of this task in raising children to his wife. But may I say that delegating is a very, very different thing than dumping. And that is what many men do. They dump the task of raising children upon their wife rather than delegate. Delegating involves interest. Delegating involves oversight. Delegating involves cooperation. Delegating involves help and support and involvement. The point, I think, of simply addressing this to fathers is to inform us that men are not to be disinterested nor are they to be distant from the process of raising their children. Again, as many fathers are prone to be. But rather they are to be actively taking the lead. 
So the primary admonition, the primary command here is to fathers. Yet there is equal application to both parents as God intended this this parenting role to be a team effort. Then as we come to our text here, as we continue, there are two commands here in this text given two instructions that are given to fathers or to parents. One of them is negative and the other is positive. The first one is negative. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Or I like the way the NIV translates that word. Do not, do not exasperate your children. Kids, I think you just found your favorite Bible verse. Fully worthy of framing and giving it to your parents as a gift. Worthy of printing off and putting it on your wall so they'll see it when they come in your room. Parents liked the ones last week about the rebellious son who the ravens will pluck his eyes out. You know, this one's yours, kids. Do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't exasperate them. Don't drive them nuts. Okay? Now, as parents, we go, well, how do we exasperate our children? How do we drive them to anger? And we look at the verse and we look for the answer. And it, hmm, where is it? What is the answer? Well, I don't think that God will exasperate us by giving us a command that we are to follow without letting us understand what it is. To say, don't do something, but never explain what it is we're not supposed to do. I think the answer then must be somewhere here in the text. Somewhere here in this passage of Scripture. And I believe the first place that we should look at this is to look back at where we have been. See, I think that when we as parents fail to live godly in our homes and in our relationships, in our homes and with our children, when we fail to do that, when we violate those all those little principles that we put together, 25 of them from chapter 4 and chapter 5, that we put in a nice handy little pamphlet for our reference where you can go, oh, I need that one. Oh, i got to work on that one. They're available in the back if you didn't get one. We ran out last week, uh, and so we've, we're into our second printing already. The new printing is even updated with the right number on the front because it said 24 when there were 25 because your pastor is fallible, but the Word of God is not. Folks, when we go against these things, we exasperate our kids. I'm going to give some examples, not using, not going down through this list, but giving a few more common examples that we might think of, and you can see very quickly how they relate to the things on this list and the things that we have studied over the last couple of weeks. Here's one example. We can exasperate our children. We can drive them to anger when we lose the remote, because that does drive our kids crazy. Where did it go? How did I do it? There it is, hiding Wow. (laughs) Okay, but uh, anyway, we can crush and embitter and alienate our kids if we, for example, are selfish. Selfish meaning self-centered. 
neglectful of them because we are busy with ourselves, our own needs, our own desires, our own wants. We are disinterested in them. Selfish. That goes against number one in our list of 25 things. Be humble, chapter 4, verse 10 of Ephesians. It goes against be tender-hearted, chapter 4, verse 32, which is number uh, 15 on our list. It goes against number 17 on our list, which is love like Jesus loves. It goes against number 25 in the list, which is chapter 5, verse 21, which says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, to put the interest and the needs of others ahead of ourselves. in other words. See, selfishness, that can provoke our kids to anger. Another thing that will provoke our kids to anger is when we are angry. Goes against number three on our list, which says that we are to con- that we are to be patient. Goes against number six on our list. Control our anger. Chapter four, verse twenty-six. And you see, I can go on, and all of these things just tie to this list. But how we provoke our kids to anger when we are harsh, when we are impatient, when we are irritable, when we are verbally or physically violent. We anger our children, we exasperate them when we cannot be counted on to be honest. Number five on our list, put away falsehood, speak the truth, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. When we're dishonest. Our kids need to be able to count on us for the absolute, unwavering truth. We exasperate our kids when we are critical. We are always finding fault when we are demeaning and belittling towards them, when we call them names or make fun of their efforts. How destructive that is to our children And the Scripture says, chapter 4, verse 29 of Ephesians, let no corrupting or unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. We exasperate our kids when we withhold praise and encouragement. Our kids need to hear that we are proud of them, that we are pleased with them. That's such a big thing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, but what should come out of our mouth is that which builds up those who hear. Number 10 on our list. We exasperate our kids when we are unloving, when we withhold affection from them. How they need to know that they are loved, that they are cared for, cared about. Going along with that as well, that perhaps even worse than withholding affection is playing favorites. Giving more to this and loving this child or this person, this other kid and the person in the family more than them. Mm. Chapter 6, verse 9, there's no partiality with God. They shouldn't play favorites in our home. We exasperate our kids when we are hypocritical, when we don't practice what we preach, when we say to them, don't yell at your sister, don't yell at your brother, as we yell at them. We yell at them, we yell at our spouse, or when we yell at the dog, whatever, and we yet are always saying to them, don't yell. Well, we say, don't lie, but then they hear us lie. They hear us lie to get a discount on some admission ticket or to, you know, whatever. We exasperate our kids when we are inconsistent with the rules. 
with the expectation so that what is ignored today is punished tomorrow and what is demanded today is ignored later. We exasperate our kids. We drive them to anger when there is contradiction between the parents. When mom says this, but dad says that. Now, kids, of course, being excellent lawyers and being very you know, self-serving, will try to exploit that. But even while they try to exploit it, it is unsettling in them. Mom and dad can't agree. Mom and dad can't get along. Mom and dad can't work it out. And it exasperates them. Moms and dads got to get it together. If you disagree on stuff, you got to find a way to do it. All that stuff is in here. But you got to come on to the common page because, let me tell you, you're outnumbered. At least you're outnumbered if you're not together. We drive our kids to exasperation when we don't love or honor our spouse. We learned last week that kids are required to honor their father and mother, to obey their father and mother. How can they honor their parent when we don't? When we don't set the example, when we don't set the pace, they should never hear us demeaning our spouse. Even I recognize in this day when we deal with and many of you deal with divorce situations, makes it all the more complicated and all the more difficult. But we need to take the effort because our God calls our kids to honor their father and mother, so we must seek and strive to do the same. Always. So there's a list of things we are not to do. In essence, to sum it up, whenever we fail to live right and relate right in our home, we cause confusion, we cause conflict, we cause frustration in our children. But, that's the next word in the verse. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but. In contrast to that, what are we to do? Here we have it in contrast. Bring up your children, bring them up, in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Bring up your children. That's the contrast. Instead of exasperating them, bring them up. And then there are four important concepts here for us to notice in this bringing them up. The first is that word bring up. Literally, to translate that from the Greek, it is the word nurture. The word nurture is a gardening term. It's a farming term. It, has, it relates to, a, to growing up a plant or growing up a garden. And the concept here is that this nurture involves several things. This nurture involves, first of all, tender care. It's like a good gardener will give to a tender, fragile little plant. And it's a reminder that for the, though we as parents are the authority over our children, we are not to be tyrants, we are not to be dictators, we are not authoritarians, we are an authority, but we are concerned with this tender little plant. We are a gentle authority whose every motive and every action towards this child is aimed for their care. 
is aimed for their well-being, is aimed for their growth. That's involved in that word nurture. But also in that word nurture is this, that we, in bringing up our children, we are to be intentional. You see, go back to the garden. Good gardens don't just happen accidentally. Many of us in the spring will will have that wonderful thought, I'm going to have a garden this year. I'm going to grow corn and squash and watermelons and, you know, we get all these things. And so we get the tiller and we go and we till up, you know, half an acre or whatever it is. And we, we prepare the soil and we get it to be a beautiful soil. And we, we plant the seeds or the seedlings and we get it all ready. And yes, it's great. We water it in and we're really excited. And then life happens. And all that gardening stuff was really great for the first week. And after that, we had no time. But at the end of the season, you still have a great garden, right? Not if you wanted to grow corn, watermelon, and, and uh, you know, squash and whatever else. What you've got is a bunch of dead plants there that you were trying to grow and a wonderful crop of weeds. Gardens, growing a plant takes intentional effort and active, continual care. And so it is with raising children. It doesn't just happen. You will not raise your children well by accident. It takes intention and continual effort, thought, planning, and even sacrifice. One last thing from this concept of nurture, and that is the end goal. What is our aim in nurturing our children? It is maturity. Our aim is not just to protect our children, to shelter them from danger. That's at times a good thing to do, but it's not the only thing. Our aim is not to make our children and control our children so that they conform to our rules. Yes, we do want our children to obey, but our aim isn't controlling their behavior. And our aim isn't protecting them. What is our aim? It's to grow them all the way to maturity. To raise our children so so they are moved and grown to the place where they are ready to launch, to be independent, to be competent, to be self-disciplined, to be godly men and women who love Jesus Christ. That is godly parenting. That's all wrapped up in that little word, nurture. See, God used an economy of words to get some big ideas here that we need. The second important concept here is in the next phrase, nurture or raise up your children in the discipline. Training our kids is a big deal. And that word discipline is also the word train. Many of our Bibles will translate it that way. As I start here, may I help us understand that we need to we need to grasp the difference between discipline and punishment because we often confuse those and we think they are one and the same, but discipline and punishment are vastly different. Punishment focuses on the past. And the aim, the purpose of punishment is to provide a penalty for a wrong that has been committed. 
On the other hand, discipline looks not toward the past, but looks toward the future. And the aim of discipline is to promote character growth. Discipline may involve punishment, but discipline also involves much more. It's a much broader thing that involves and includes things like rewards and encouragements and warnings and teaching and praise and other things. See, discipline is the process of training children with the aim to grow godly character. See, oftentimes we hear that word discipline and we think punishment. Oh my, don't miss. When it says discipline here, it's much bigger. It is admittedly a very hard work and it requires that, first of all, we know what we're trying to produce. What is it that we want our children to be? And then discipline is monitoring their progress and it is identifying problems along the way and developing plans. How do we produce change and providing then the appropriate rewards or appropriate punishments that encourage our children to godly behavior? That is biblical discipline. To bring up our children, it involves nurture, it involves discipline. We're to bring them up in the discipline and the next word is the instruction. The instruction of the Lord. Two things I want to note about instruction. Instruction is teaching, but it is not class. It's not uh, school. But two things I want us to notice. First is this. Our instruction of our children needs to be personal and purposeful. Purposeful and personal. We've heard this morning from Pastor Aaron about Kids Club is ready to start up this week. We've talked about there's Sunday school and there's children's church and there's kids club and there's youth group. We've got a lot of things for kids and young people in this church. Those are wonderful things. And I want and I hope that you take advantage of those. But they are tools to help you as mom and dad because effective of your children requires you. You personally making instruction part of your daily life and daily interaction with your children. The Word of God puts it this way, Deuteronomy chapter 6. These commandments, God is speaking, these commandments I give to you today, you are to write them upon, they're to be upon your hearts, you are to impress them on your children and talk about them while you are at home and while you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. The whole point is from early morning till the end of the day, when you rise up and lay down, whether you're at home or whether you're out through the day, that all through the day in your interactions with your children, you are to be busy teaching them. Teaching them to know the Lord. Teaching them to understand how when you see this, this reminds me of something, this characteristic of God. When I see this, this reminds me of what God says about this. Teaching all through the time. Parents, that is your prime responsibility. We as a church want to help. But it's your responsibility. Secondly, Teaching involves being an example. If we teach, if we want our children to follow Christ, we have to model it by example at home. One of my college professors used to always say, if you want your students to stand up straight, you gotta bend over backwards. And so it is, that's what we have to do, moms and dads. 
Let them see godly character fleshed out in your life. Let them see your values lived out every day. Let them see the goodness and grace and gentleness of our God in your relationships. We read earlier in Psalm 103 in the scripture reading, the Lord our God is full, is gracious and full of compassion. That is the character of our God. And kids need to see that in us as their mom and dad. The last thing I notice in these, the fourth thing in this bringing up our children, we bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It is valuable that our children learn to read and to write and to do math. It's valuable that they learn how to clean their room, how to swim, how to play a sport, how to change a tire, how to do their laundry, how to fry an egg. Those are good life lessons, good skills. But they're not the most important things our children need to learn. What is it that our children need to learn most? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What do they need to succeed in life? I won't take the time to read, but you can go this on your own this today or this week and read Psalm 1. What is it that brings success in life? It is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his light he in his law he meditates day and night. In other words, they know God's word. What do our children need to really succeed in life? They need to know God. They need to know what he says. And why is all this such a big deal, moms and dads? Because we live in a world that's a mess. We live in a world that bombs bombards children with with teaching and messages all day long, every day. And the message the world is proclaiming is not God's truth. And it's not the reality, the truth about God. When I go back to chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, I'm reminded the Apostle Paul writes there in chapter 2 and verse 12, he reminds us of what life was like when we didn't know God's truth. And when we didn't have a relationship with Jesus, do you know what he says there? He describes it this way. We were without God and without hope in the world. That's really what life is without God. There is no hope. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. There is no significance. There is no place to turn when things are difficult. I can't think of a better way to describe exasperation. How do we exasperate our kids? Well, when we don't live as we ought before them. But I think we also exasperate our children. We do not bring them up to know the only answer there is to all of those ails, what ails the world. We have a world full of people out there who are trying to find something that will fill the voids and the emptiness and the hurt and the longings of their life. And they pour themselves into materialism. They pour themselves into music. They pour themselves into sexuality and drugs and alcohol and even into gangs and into violence and into crime and even into self-mutilation. And some just go to suicide trying to find some way to just end the pain. 
And God's antidote to that is He gives children parents. Parents who are to be examples before them and to raise them, to to nurture them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So moms and dads who are here this morning, that's your job description. I admit it's a big one. But it also is a high calling. God says, here's your job. It's job one. And there's no greater thing that you can do with your life than to try to do this well. Those of us who, don't, who aren't moms and dads right now, our kids are grown. This whole thing should remind us, this is a big deal. And these moms and dads that are around us, they need our prayers. They need our help. They need our encouragement. They need us to come alongside. We're in a world filled with kids and young people who need to hear about Jesus and most of them don't even have godly moms and dads. Yet I think that there is nothing greater than any of us can do than to invest in the next generation by looking to live a godly and good life before those who need to hear so they can see the grace and the goodness of Jesus and do our best to, to point them to Him. That's it. There's the message. Whether you're a parent or not, there's a place for you in this. Let's pray. Father God, what, a, what, a, what an amazing passage. There, is, there are things here that parents need to hear. Yes, it's challenging, but it's also encouraging because, oh, we're reminded here of what's really important and how easy it is to get focused on the stuff that's not important. We're also reminded, all of us, of how important it is to put into practice what Your Word says, to live worthy of the calling we've received as children of Yours, as husbands, as wives, as, as parents, as single people, how we need to put these things in practice in our relationship so that all of us can be those who point people to Jesus through our example as well as our words. Father, thank You for the good news. God, loved, You love the world so much that You sent Your only Son. You sent Jesus so that whoever will believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. May that be the message the world hears from us and sees in us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.